everyone. Uh, it's lovely to be back with you um, again this morning. Uh, good to see some familiar faces. Um, as you'll have gathered from the reading, we're going through some sort of heavy stuff today. So seatbelts on. Um, we're going to pray now uh, for God's help. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Father, we pray our hearts will be ready for this more than ever this morning. By your spirit, do your will in our lives, we pray. Because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you remember where you were when England um, won the Rugby World Cup in 2003? Um, I do. I was uh, 12 years old at the time um, and distinctly remember um, being around a family friend's house to watch it together. Um, Everyone kind of jumped off their seats and was cheering and clapping when we won. I remember being driven home and um, hearing lots of people celebrating in the streets, people beeping their horns. Um, For days, it seemed like it was the only thing that people ever really talked about, whether it's at school or on the news, just everywhere. It's one of those moments that I'll never forget, where it seemed like the whole nation stopped to witness history in the making. Maybe for you, um, it wasn't the Rugby World Cup. Uh, Maybe it was the Football World Cup um, in uh, 1996, or the moon landing um, in 1969, um, or maybe the last time Great Britain won the Eurovision Song Contest in 1997. Okay, maybe not. Um, But those aren't the only moments um, in history that we remember where we were, are they? Two years before the rugby, um, having just got back from school, I sat at the dining table while my mum explained to me that something terrible had happened earlier that day. Two planes had crashed into the Twin Towers in New York. Another vivid memory. Do you remember where you were when you first heard about the Manchester bombings in 2017? or the Haiti earthquake in 2010. Devastating days when nations stopped and were left on their knees for weeks, months, even years after. It's no exaggeration to say that this was the scale of the catastrophic disaster that the locusts brought in Joel. Like a tsunami, the locusts just kept on coming, wave after wave, swarm after swarm. When they thought it couldn't get any worse, again, another horde of locusts swept through the land, devouring everything in its past. Even when you thought nothing was left for them to ravage, another swarm came by and ate the remains. It was a militant, army-like locust swarm that left nothing in its wake. This was an unparalleled crisis of biblical proportions, which had huge economic, agricultural, and spiritual consequences. Now, in the UK, uh, we might not be all that familiar with um, locusts uh, because we don't necessarily appreciate the devastation that they can bring. Um, Now, the issue with locusts is not their size, um, but their appetite and number. Um, I've gone to the National Geographic to give you a few facts. Um, A desert locust swarm can be 1,200 square kilometers in size. So that's the equivalent of 56 full-size football pitches. Um, And in that space, it can pack between 40 and 80 million locusts in less than one square kilometer. 
So that means that could be as many as 70 billion locusts in a single swarm. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, each locust can eat its weight in plants each day. So a swarm of that size could eat 192 million kilograms of plants every day. Um, Hundreds of years ago, a swarm of locusts were swept off uh, the coast of South Africa by the wind and died at sea. And a few days later, the tide brought in the dead locusts back to shore. The swarm stretched 50 miles and was four feet deep. I hope that helps to give you um, begin to understand the aftermath of the national calamity that Joel writes about. Now, we don't actually know um, a great deal about Joel or his dad, Pethuel. Um, it's the only time that they're mentioned in the Bible in chapter 1 and verse 1, which means theologians are guessing as to where this kind of fits into Israel's history. But the reality is, if the period in time the book of Joel was written really mattered, God would have told us here. What Joel has told us about is the judgment that God brought on his people. In Exodus 10, one of the plagues God brought about on Egypt to save his people was locusts. And yet here we are in Joel, and God is using the same plague to punish his own people. It's pretty shocking, really. You see, where Exodus was about rescue and redemption, Joel is about judgment and repentance. One of the strange things about the book is that despite it being about judgment, it never specifically mentions why God's judgment has been brought on this people. There's no specific sin that's been mentioned. In Hosea, just before, it's very clear that Israel had committed spiritual adultery by turning to other gods. Or in Amos, where people were ignoring the poor and allowing injustice to happen in the land. In Joel, there's no such explanation. It's the solution, not the cause, that's the pressing problem here. What it tells us is this, that God uses Joel less to focus on the sin itself, but more to focus on the consequence of sin, and what our response to it should be. And that leads us uh, to our first point this morning. We are under God's severe judgment. Verses 1 to 12. We are under God's severe judgment. The first few verses in Joel grab your attention as it builds towards the locust invasion in verse 4. A bit like breaking news that cuts across um, programs across all channels at the same moment to inform the people of this historic event that would be remembered from generation to generation. The day of the locusts. Verse 2. Listen up, everyone. Has anything like this ever happened before? Tell your neighbors, tell your children, make sure everyone knows. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the long, young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. Joel first addresses the elders who are most qualified to answer his obvious question. Had anything like this ever happened before? Absolutely not. This was completely unprecedented. Usually it was God's deliverance in the Old Testament that was to be shared from generation to generation, but uniquely here, it's his judgment. He uses poetic language to describe the comprehensive nature of the fourfold destruction to the land and goes on to explain the impact it had on three particular groups in the community. Drunks, 
priests and farmers. It sounds a bit like a beginning of a bad joke, doesn't it? There was an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman. There was a drunk, a priest, and a farmer. Anyway, we're going to spend uh, some time with each. So first stop, the pub. Verse 5. The people who first realized the effects of the locust swarm were the regulars whose happiness was dependent on the wine supply. Now, something I learned at university was that one, the one thing that you don't deprive an, um, someone drunk of is alcohol. Um, otherwise, you'll soon have a situation on your hands. You can pretty much take anything else from them, and they won't notice, but alcohol, and they'll know about it. Verse 5, wake, weep, and wail. Empty glasses, not at the end of the night, but before the night has even begun. The vines and fig trees had been completely obliterated by the locusts, who are are compared here to a mighty army that has the appetite of a lion, in verse 6. They didn't just strip the fig trees and the vines of figs and grapes, but also the bark, leaving the branches completely bare. No fig or grape was left in sight. These gifts from God to his people were stripped from them. The weather spoons are boarded up, even Maggie Mays too. Happy hour has been permanently cancelled. This was no doubt a sobering thought for the drunkard. Second stop, the church. Verse 9. The sacrificial system had ground to a halt. The temple was in lockdown. Without grain, new wine, and olive oil, in verse 10, the priests were unable to give grain and drink offerings as the Lord had commanded in Leviticus. All the religious festivals, so that's Pentecost, Tabernacles, first fruits, and many more were cancelled until further notice. Grain, wine, and oil had always been symbols of the Lord's blessing throughout the Minor Prophets, but now had become a sign of the Lord's judgment. A whole community is built on them. Like if you're Rishi Sunak or Sakir Starmer, those are the three things you'd want to promise in a political campaign. Grain, new wine, and olive oil. God's people couldn't make themselves right with him anymore. This was a vicious cycle of being separated from God and, as far as they could tell, not being able to do anything about it. Verse 8 paints a vivid picture, doesn't it? Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. There's a funeral in the place a wedding was booked. Instead of a wedding dress, she puts on a funeral gown. She became a widow before she was even a bride. That's the reason for the anguish and mourning um, of the priest in verse 9. The direct line of communion with God had been cut off, no longer able to enjoy the blessings of fellowship with God through the only means possible. Third stop, the farm. Verse 11. This was the heart of the economy back then, so probably a bit more comparable to the stock exchange today. It had crashed. There was an economic crisis. Famine and death stared them in the face. No aid would come. There wasn't any international relief they could rely on. An economic recession and depression lay ahead. Vines and fig trees were symbols of prosperity. Both could be preserved and used all year round in alcoholic or sun-dried forms. But verse 12, the fact that they're dried up and withered reflects the poverty that the Lord is enforcing on his people. The list of five trees is by no means a comprehensive list, 
but it gives us just a taste of the destruction to the farmland. Morrison's, Little, and One Stop were all out of stock, all out of business, shutters are down, no sign of coming back up again. Joel shows us that there was no area of life unscathed from the vicious locust attack. But much to our surprise, despite how historic a day the day of the locust was, it's not the main focus in Joel. In fact, we find out that the day of the locust was just a trailer for another day, the day of the Lord, where there will be final judgment on God's enemies and vindication for his people. The day of the Lord is the main theme that runs through the book. It's first mentioned in verse 15 and then another four times through Joel. The main theme runs through the minor prophets as well. You hear about it in Amos, Obadiah, and Zephaniah too. Joel describes the locust swarm as a day of the Lord because it gave the people a taste of the judgment yet to come. So in some senses, as we look back on Old Testament, we can see many days of the Lord play out. In Genesis, when Noah built an ark to survive the flood that destroyed all life on earth, that was a day of the Lord. Or what about in Exodus, when God's people crossed the Red Sea and in their pursuit, the Egyptian army, army was washed away? That too was Earth Day of the Lord. All these historic events foreshadow a day when God will bring judgment in his supreme power and use it to call out to the people to command them to repent and turn to him. In some cases, the judgment was on God's enemies. And in others, like here in Joel, it's against his people. And there's an element that as we experience disasters and crisis today, that we too know something of the day of the Lord, by no means in, it, in its entirety, but just in a small way. Now let me be really clear here. What I'm not saying is that when something awful happens, it is God judging people for their particular sins. Not at all. But what I am saying is that by being a broken and sinful people, living in a broken and sinful world, we begin to experience some of God's judgment on everything that is wrong with our world. Not in a specific way, because of specific sins, but in a much more general way. Let me give you an example from Scripture. When Jesus spoke in Luke 13 about a tower that fell and killed some Galileans, he was very clear that they were no more guilty than anyone else. That wasn't why they died and others didn't. But he still urged everyone present to repent, otherwise they too would perish. And as people that play a part in the brokenness of the world, we feel the ripples of God's judgment on our lives today. When nurses and doctors left the safety of their home to attend the hospitalized in COVID-19, they experienced something of the day of the Lord. When you visit someone you love in hospital for the last time, you've experienced something of the day of the Lord. When little Finley Bowden was endured immense pain and died at the suffering of his parents on Christmas Day, the first responders knew something of the day of the Lord. When you face memories of an adult who took advantage of you, you'll have experienced something of the day of the Lord. 
Now, maybe you feel particularly well acquainted with the day of the Lord, with what you've been through in your life, whether that's a, a miscarriage or the betrayal of a spouse or a lifelong condition. In those moments in life, the Lord points us to something that is far worse to come. I told you it would be heavy today. That is the sobering message of Joel. That when we go through crisis in our lives or see national disasters, we're to remember the judgment God will bring on those who don't believe in Jesus will be immeasurably worse and will last an eternity. Suffering and crisis are a sign that we're living in a cursed and condemned world. We should recognize that all is not well in the world. This is not the way God made it to be. If I'm honest, I'm not sure I can say that when I've experienced crisis in my life, that I've been drawn to think about God's judgment. I don't know about you. Often I might turn to his sovereignty um, or the little blessings that he gives to keep me going, which isn't a bad thing at all. But by not reflecting on his judgment, I've forgotten that I'm not a victim, that I've not been innocently caught up in something, but that in all the bad I experience on earth is only a fraction of what I deserve before a holy, just, and righteous God if it were not for his grace to me in the Lord Jesus. We are under God's severe judgment. It's pretty intense stuff, isn't it? It's not been a comfortable sermon to prepare, I can tell you that. But let's move on to our second point this morning. To understand what our response to God's holy and righteous judgment should be. We are to cry out to God in repentance. Verses 13 to 20. We are to cry out to God in repentance. My wife um, has had many interesting jobs um, in her time. Um, one of them was where she used to um, support victims of crime. Um, and she had often come back with um, uh, having met some really interesting people and had some really interesting stories to tell. Um, one particular family um, that she met um, had a little girl who was getting pretty frustrated that she wasn't getting her own way. Um, just as she was about to turn on the waterworks to see if that would work, um, her dad uh, stopped her and said, is this worth one of your cries? The little girl stopped to consider whether she was going to waste one of her three allocated cries for the week on this particular situation. Um, she decided against it and stopped crying. Crying is a currency. I quite like that. I think that's a clever idea, don't you think? Now, you see, the, the cry out that we're to do to God is not something that we can just turn on or turn off um, or can be used as some kind of bargaining tool like this dad and daughter. It's an earnest and deeply serious cry. Verse 13. Sackcloth was the equivalent of like a, a black suit or a, or a gown today because it was the normal thing that you'd wear when mourning the death of a loved one. But surprisingly here, the death that the priests are talking about is the death of the nation's relationship with God. I guess if I was them, the first thing I'd be thinking about is the absence of all this food and the harvest thinking about how I was going to survive, looking at the tins, seeing how much I've got left and how long I can keep going. But the reality is that something more disastrous is happening here that Joel is pointing them towards. God had intervened in his righteous wrath. The problem at hand was not their absence of food, but their damaged relationship with God. 
And that's why Joel calls for repentance on a national scale in verse 14. Not just the leaders of the nation, but the people of it as well. All were called to gather together to fast and cry out to God. Fasts um, were designed by God to remind people of their complete and utter dependence on him. And sacred assemblies were a godly response to national times of crisis, which we see in other places in the Old Testament. I guess for the UK government, when there's a crisis, you'll often hear um, uh, the COBRA meeting has been um, assembled. So that's all your kind of uh, emergency response committee, your ministers, civil servants, police, um, and anyone else um, that comes together to make important decisions um, to decide how to turn the situation around. Joel knew exactly what needed to happen, though. The nation needed to cry out to God in repentance and faith. There was no better time than now, no more appropriate time for the drunkard, the priest, and the farmer. God's judgment revealed their neediness before him, and they needed to humble themselves before him. The crops that sustained them were only by God's generous provision. The land God's people lived in, they only occupied as God's tenants. And the exclusive relationship they enjoyed with him in the temple was only by God's instruction and grace. No one in God's land was exempt. Everything stopped. The schools were shut. Work was cancelled. The freshly made coffee was left to go cold as everyone flocked to the temple to repent while there was still time. Not only did the people need to cry out, but the livestock did too in verse 18. Cattle and sheep were in deep distress, thirsty and starving. Even Joel cries out in verse 19. When he visits the fields, the grain is all dried up and the seed is completely shriveled. When he opens the storehouses, they too are completely empty. It's unclear if the, the fire here is an actual wildfire or the sun, but either way, it's baked the land into a barren desert. The people cry out, the livestock cry out, and Joel himself cries out to the Lord before it's too late. Look at verse 15. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. The day of the Lord is here doesn't mean that it had to happen soon, because we know it didn't, but instead that it was on the brink of happening. So John Piper really helpfully describes it as the trumpet being drawn to the lips of God as his troops were assembled and ready for the sound to bring destruction. It was on the verge of happening. The day of the locust almost turned into the day of the Lord. That was the hurry and the urgency in Joel's call to, call to the people to repent and turn to God. And I wonder, have you? Maybe you've been coming to church not for that much time, um, or you have for a few years, but only in bits. Maybe you've found the, the people to be nice and friendly, but you've never called the God that we worship your own. Maybe you've been coming to church for a while now, but you haven't made your mind up. Or maybe you've attended here for years and have learned what to say to fit in. The call for you this morning is to cry to God for mercy from his judgment. Humble yourself before him. By default, in our human nature, judgment rests on us. It's a prayer of dependence on the true and living God. Why not pray that prayer for the first time this morning? It can't wait. Don't fool yourself into thinking you'll do it later in life. 
it's not worth the risk. The stakes are just too high. He is the mighty judge of all that could come at any time. Truly, the day of the Lord is near. So let me ask you again. Are you ready? It's a terrible and terrifying day. But know this. Salvation and victory are only possible because judgment's done its work. Let me say that again. Salvation and victory are only possible because judgment's done its work. For those that repent and turn to God, judgment no longer rests on them. It rests on the Lord Jesus. It was he who endured earth day of the Lord when he willingly gave over his life to take the judgment that we deserve. We were so needy and powerless that there was absolutely nothing that we could do about the coming judgment. Christian, you didn't dodge a bullet. Jesus took the bullet. No good works, no charity donations, no church attendance, no goodwill, no good track record that could save us. Only the goodness and grace of our Lord Jesus in sending his only son for us. That's all that could do it. Now Jesus has been judged in our place. We know that on the day of the Lord, we will enjoy salvation with our God. The day where he will finally and fully intervene in the world and reveal his sovereignty to all. Everything that's against him he will sweep aside and those who love and follow him will finally be vindicated and rejoice in victory. Repentance spares us. The day of judgment turns into a day of hope. But those who ignore God's warning will be judged. And that can't be avoided. The Lord is the source of judgment and the hope of deliverance. Well, Joel is a, a sobering book, isn't it? But also a wonderful one. It warns of the punishment that will be brought on those who reject God. But it also promises vindication and a truly glorious future for those who trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we reflect on Joel chapter 1, we're taken aback at the devastating power of your judgment. Would the crisis and suffering that we face be a stark reminder of where we would be headed apart from your grace? Thank you that in the Lord Jesus we have someone who took the punishment that we so rightly deserve. We cry out to you now, in repentance and faith, resting in the assurance of knowing the hope that is in our Lord Jesus. So we eagerly look forward to a time when hunger, illness, abuse and grief are no more and we will be united with our Saviour for all eternity. Because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.